Hey, Holly. Hey, Dave. What is going on today on the What Difference Does It Make podcast? Today is another fantabulous day on the What Difference Does It Make podcast. We have a super fun guest, and I am very excited to talk to him. Very much looking forward to it. He's a well-rounded, interesting guy. And uh, who is he? We are talking to Paul Myers. We have a Canadian guest who we love. So with Canada, we talk donuts. We talk Tim Hortons, SCTV. It's very exciting for us because he actually has a connection to the kids in the hall who I love dearly. All five of them. The Fab Five. Kids in the hall. Um, (laughs) And if you listen to the whole podcast, you'll know who is the sexiest kid in the hall. (laughs) (laughs) They are all very sexy. He literally wrote the book on Kids in the Hall. He will mention it, but I'll mention it again. The book is called One Dumb Guy, and there is a new documentary on the Kids in the Hall that's also available on Amazon Prime. He was a producer on this, and it is fabulous. The documentary is called Kids in the Hall Comedy Punks, and it's available now on Amazon Prime. He's also the host of the podcast, the Record Store Day podcast, which that alone would be enough for us to talk about. I agree. Yeah. Paul has worked this so well that he gets to talk to all his favorite artists and some amazing new artists that are coming up. And it's all on this Record Store Day podcast. We'll get into the uh, soup to nuts, how this all came together. He's really funny. And if you visit our YouTube channel, What Difference Does It Make podcast YouTube channel, you'll see some outtakes and he's got some just funny stories to share. So check it out. And also on the rest of our social media, WDDIM Podcast. Yes. Wonderful. I'm glad you remembered that. Remember to subscribe if you love what you're about to hear. We're asking you to subscribe in advance. Yeah, just do that because we do this. We do this every once in a while. So welcome, Paul Myers. To the What Difference Does It Make podcast. Sure. You want to start the show properly? or There's no proper way to start. First of all, happy okay, donut. Well, you are Canadian, everybody. so happy donut day to you. I don't know if you've had Is your donut. donut day? Wow, I didn't know, eh? Yeah, there you <laughs> uh, That's cool. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess uh, yes, I guess if I was in Toronto right now, I'd be going to Tim's. Timmy's. <sighs> all right. Get me, a, get me a snow tire or double-double. Okay, cool. Does he go by his first name, first name only? We're all very familiar with Tim Horton up there. All right, so Tim yeah. Horton is what we're talking about. I have never experienced a Tim Hortons yet. I'm not a short answer person, so beware. Okay. Uh, so Tim Horton himself was a Canadian a hockey player who played for, at various times, I believe the Toronto Maple Leafs, but I think he finished his career with the Buffalo Sabres. You know, like a lot of hockey players, he was advised to get into uh, the restaurant business. There's a couple other people who did that, and sometimes it doesn't work out. In this case, it did. He created a donut shop, which is basically you're driving along the, you know, one of the big highways, and there'd be a little yellow sign that says Tim Hortons always fresh. And they would have a selection of, at the time, maybe 10 donuts and coffee and tea and hot chocolate. And that was pretty much it. And it was a roadside thing. Everyone really liked it because it was, you know, it was reliable, just like any kind of fast food franchise that you knew what you were going to get just coffee and donuts. And then they expanded to like bowls of chili and sandwiches and, you know, you know all that all that sort of um, fresh this, fresh that. But then apparently they're owned by an American anyway now. So that, so that and Tim Horton passed away many years ago, but they never did a memorial donut for him or anything, a little wreath or anything. They never did that. But I, I always thought they should do like a black donut just for Tim, but you know. Did he sell to an American company before he passed? Or I did don't it? think he did, actually. I think I think it was definitely one of those things that I didn't know I'd have to study for the Tim Hortons <laughs> test. But um, I will say that um, the, what I know is it's all anecdotal and uh, in no way legally binding. 
Okay. <laughs> Same so with when us. We Same, this, yeah. We're going to post that. And yeah. we're going to, we'll, we'll have to post that expert, information. Self-proclaimed expert on Tim Hortons franchising. Yeah. Yeah. No, no that's not me at all. <laughs> okay. I'm just, a, I'm just an ordinary ex, well, I'm a Canadian who's uh, expat in California. So I think they have them in New York City now. I don't know. Oh, they got to get them in LA. Okay. So what, one other Canadian thing I have to mention, because comedy You're going to mention many Canadian I know, things, I know, I but I, I, the one thing about Canada, I, I'm also a, we're not, we will talk kids in the hall, but just briefly, SCTV, there was this skit on SCTV where it was like uh, Guy Lafleur was uh, talking to Daryl Sittler. <laughs> yeah. And Qu- one of Cornabix. the- Cornabix. Uh, cereal. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. You remember that. So one of, one of the threats was, hey, you want a Pepsi? And we used to always joke about that. Like, that's a, is that a Canadian? Like, you know, hey, how about a Pepsi? What's that supposed to mean? And then they, they throw I down their gloves and they one. start fighting. I'm Guy Lafleur. I'm Daryl Sittler. And I use a Daryl Sittler hockey stick. Guy Lafleur hockey stick. Guy wants to curve it? Yeah, sure thing, Daryl. Hey, this stuff looks a okay, huh? Yeah, it sure does. Boy, I can try some mm, malt flavor and everything. And some Pepsi Cola with it? <laughs> I don't know what that is, but I, I think I recall, and this is, again, not an expert... I think in Quebec might actually be a, a put down of women. I'm not sure. It might be like, uh, you know, like not not a very nice thing to say. But I don't know that. So you have to check with your Quebec history guy. So uh, again, this is all conjecture. That. Yeah, it's just. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that sketch I know very well because uh, the guy who played Daryl Sittler in that looked nothing like Daryl Sittler. It was in fact John Candy, <laughs> yeah. and and John Candy uh, was so good that he could play a somewhat more svelte hockey player, more in shape hockey player. And still make you believe it was Daryl Sittler. So that's pretty cool. It's one of my favorites. I know this because I'm actually currently writing a, a book that I've been working for about a year and a half, maybe two years on this book about John Candy. And I've got like, you know, Joe Flaherty and Catherine O'Hara, but also like Ron Howard and all these people talk to me for it. And actually, I'm picking up interviews all the time still. Like, I'm still writing. I'm writing it, but still getting last minute interviews from like a lot of people. So it's been really exciting. It's going to come out in about a year. Let's book you, book you now for, yeah. we can book you now for when you start the book tour. Absolutely. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I'll, I'll be, I'll be out there. Was it thumping the tubs for this thing? Yeah. The way, the way I did for the kids in the hall for the last two years. So that's is that, your transition. Is tub thumping? A, so wait, so, okay, wait, is that it's tub thumping? Thing, I know, you know but tub thumping down, is, is that tub thumping? I never knew is, where it came from. Is yeah. that tub thumping Dang actually it. a thing? Well, just banging the pots and pans is what I'm using it for. Okay. But I, I uh, you know, we, again, I didn't know I'd be here as an expert on any of these <laughs> things. But uh, a have, lot of what I say is conjecture and and sort of anecdotal. But uh, I, I will tell you when I am an expert on something, and then 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 we'll. Okay. So we'll so John Candy right now is you're you are like right right in the I'm middle. I'm somewhat up on John Candy. Yes, I'm okay. very up on John Candy. So that's right great. Now. So I commit. Yeah. So. Mentioned Daryl Sittler. Exciting. Yeah, I mean Johnny Larue and all those. There's a tiny picture. There's a tiny picture of John Candy up there. Were you friends with John Candy? Did you know him? I have never met John Candy okay. in my life. My brother Mike, who you probably know is an actor, got his start at Second City because he asked John Candy outside of theater, "How do I get into comedy?" And John Candy was super awesome and gave him the the correct answer, which is study it and take lessons and see if you're any good at it and if you are work really hard luckily for my brother he was good at it and but he also <laughs> took that advice from sec you know i mean some celebrities will give you advice and that sometimes they'll just say get off my lawn and sometimes they'll also give you bad advice or they'll they won't talk to you at all john candy for everybody who ever asked him a question generally gave them the proper answer or, or tried to and in fact he had to have handlers we can talk about this later when the book comes up but he had to have handlers who knew better that he had to get on a plane right now so he couldn't stop and tell you 
you know, <laughs> if people would say like, I, I think I'm going to ask my wife, I'm going to propose marriage to her. And he go, well, like, how long have you been dating? And they'd say, John, we have to go, <laughs> you know, that, so that's, he's exactly, almost exactly what you see is what you get with John Candy. So that's uh, one of the beautiful things I've discovered doing this book mm. that's that really isn't out sweet. yet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, so we need to save this. My, my my publishers are probably like, don't do, it. don't give it away all now. <laughs> yeah, don't give Hold away some back. Don't give away the plot. Spoiler alert. Yeah. Well, <laughs> he was a nice Tim guy. Talk about it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. What else do you want to know? So, what was your comedy growing up? Or, or I'm sure it was your dad or your mom. Who was uh, mostly my dad? Yeah. What was was there a show they like you guys like to watch as a family? That was like, oh my god, this is this is amazingly funny. Like well, some well as a family. Uh, it was more, you know, American sitcoms like, uh, uh, and there's a lot of rerun culture when I was a kid. So like I was watching the Dick Van Dyke show. It, it was already in reruns, I think, you know, but, uh, you know, Mary Tyler Moore, stuff like that. The Flip Wilson show, big in our house. But late night in Canada, actually, I think even before it was on in America, in Toronto, you could see Monty Python's Flying Circus. But my dad would watch that. My, my gotcha. mother yeah. wasn't that interested in it. But my, both my parents are from Liverpool, England. So a lot of British culture was given a wide berth in our house. So, I mean, obviously the Beatles were a huge part of my life. And I became a musician mainly because I wanted to be cool like Paul McCartney and John Lennon and George Harrison and Ringo. But at the time it was Paul McCartney and John Lennon. And, you know, and then comedy, when Python came along, it was like there was a Beatles of comedy. Yeah. So we, yeah. we, there were the same thing. We understood that there was British groups that would be cooler than anything we could think of. So suddenly Python and the Beatles were equal. And it's interesting because Eric Idle and George Harrison were good friends. And, you know, there's a lot of cross talk between those two troops, you know. So that that's a very big part of you know, all three brothers, Beatles and Python, anything, you and, know. And apparently also Flintstones, because I, I looked on your Wikipedia, <laughs> which I assume is true. And there was, there's <laughs> everything, yeah, everything I read. So Gravelberry, the Gravelberry Pie, I, I looked up on YouTube. Yeah, the, like, Gravelberries, the Gravelberries is a band, and the Gravelberry Pie was our newsletter. Okay, and yeah. you got, did you get that from the Flintstones? Absolutely. Everybody, roll those Gravelberry Pies. Yahoo! <laughs> so where that comes from is I wanted to call the band something to do with the Flintstones at some point. And, you know, actually it was the Paul Myers band. And believe it or not, I, I'm such a fair player that the band kind of had a minor mutiny. They said, why don't we have a band name instead of calling it the Paul Myers band? And I said, oh, okay, sure. And <laughs> I actually thought it would actually be, I don't know, people like bands, you know, people like, they like things that have a, a group name. I was writing all the songs. I was a lead singer and all that stuff. But I thought, yeah, let's do this. So I said, let's have it be a name that's like something from the Flintstones. So we went through like, there was an episode where they have an Uncle Tex. And then and Uncle Tex was the name for about five seconds, literally at a table. That sounds good. Uncle Tex. No, it's too weird. We're not Texas rock or anything. So then how about, uh, you know, the Wilma lovers or something like that? No, that's too, you know, <laughs> that's a joke you say once and you never say it again. But then I thought I like what I call power pop, which is rough and sweet. And gravel and berry. I remember the gravelberry pie king episode where Fred takes Wilma's gravelberry pies and sells, tries to sell them. And I don't know if you remember the episode as well as I do, but he <laughs> he uh, find he does a bad deal with Mr. Safestone, and uh, and the deal is that he gets like a dollar a pie, but they cost a dollar fifty to make. And he's and he's so excited that he gets a deal that he re doesn't realize they're losing fifty cents on every pie. So then he says, "Take it or leave it," to Mr. Safestone because he wants a raise. And then and Safestone says, "Well, I, I'll leave it then." So they had all these extra pies that he sells by the road. Now the reason I tell you all of that <laughs> is 
what is being in an indie rock band that m makes their own records but a lost leader a way to lose lots of money very fast uh -huh. and you're making your little pie and it costs you your record costs you so much money to rehearse record and press and you sell it at gigs and, and you know small independent record stores and it's basically you're never really going to make money doing it that way unless you have a massive hit so most bands I know were basically by the side of the road selling pies that were melting, if you know what I mean. Oh. So that's the whole origin of the name. That is a great story, and it is a great band name. I and, like it. And you did have a little bit of a hit. I it kind of I listened to uh, what was it? Wonder where you are Wonder tonight. Wonder where you are tonight. Which reminded yeah. me of the. Uh, like it was early nineties. Like when I first heard, like, oh, this sounds like the Posies. And then when you, you're like, oh, sure. Yeah. In the U.S., I was listening, that was what I was listening to, it was Dear 23, was one of my favorite albums from that time. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I used and to, I used I to wish, love them, yeah. I wish I knew about the Gravel Berries. I would have uh, gravitated towards yeah, them. Yeah, we never, we never really had a big thing outside of the Canadian thing. We weren't even big in Canada, really, but, but you know, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, where I'm wearing a t-shirt up, they used to play it, but also a lot of, uh, a great station in the southern Ontario, the province, Toronto-based radio station called CFNY, used to play um, modern rock from... England, New York, and mostly Canada, and especially in the streets of Ontario, which was great. So Spirit we, of Radio. We were, yeah, it's Spirit of Radio. There you go. And they, they were very big, very big supporters of local music and a lot of bands who you, well, the Bare Naked Ladies, for instance, won a contest from CFNY. And that's how they made and self-financed their first record with prize money from CFNY. And then they sold that to Warner Brothers. And then years later, they had a hit in America with one week. But that's how they did it. So CFNY was, uh, I'll always tell people about CFNY because it was hugely influential the way maybe K-Rock is in LA or the way John Peel was in England. Yeah. You know? yes. Was this your station of choice? This is what you listen to late nights and, uh, and all day. I actually have a day job. I would make the uh, everyone in the office listen to CFNY, and they were really mad at me. So because they they wanted the station that played mostly um, I don't know Paula Abdul. I was playing the modern rock station. This was not the station that everyone can agree upon at work. That was always in L.A. I think that was like like KBIG, the station everyone can agree upon at work. Yeah. For a fresh new way to start your day, wake up with Guy and Jennifer and Magic in the Morning on Magic 107.9. Magic 107.9 is the station everyone at work can agree on. <laughs> Air Coast. Yeah, no, this yeah. wasn't that station. That yeah. was not yeah, in clearly in not. Toronto. It was CKFM in Toronto. It was the station that said, you know, just the light classics. You know, <laughs> that whole thing. It's like, and I can't remember who the artists were now. I'm suddenly remembering John Sakata. Uh, who oh. like you'd hear on like the CKF oh, yeah. would be like you know or the softest version of Lionel Richie like all night long and you know that that was their most funky song you know <laughs> that was Coast One Hundred Three or Can't yeah, Make yeah. It Right exactly yeah 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 so what to fall asleep and grow old by 
All right. Yeah. So who was your who was your the jock you listened to? Is like, oh my god, he's going to play something that I, you know, you there you probably lot, had there someone. There's a lot of people. One of the major influences in Canadian Toronto radio. So just Toronto, not Canadian necessarily. But David Marsden was at that station, and he had been at another station called Chum FM. And Chum FM in the '60s and '70s had been the one that was like, you know, when Led Zeppelin were in town, they might go on Chum FM. But then years later, when the sort of punk and new wave happened, CFNY kind of took their heat. But David Marsden had been at both of those stations and really was, he really brought the spirit of radio to them and that whole idea. Welcome to the Marsden Theater. <laughs> it's an electric toaster. Yes, so won't you join me here in the Marsden Theater? Sit down, relax, let the air out of your shoes. And we shall see where we can go tonight in the nighttime, GM and the PM on FM, and a little bit of that stuff called the best, the fabulous, the freeformist of them all. Yeah. He's still around and he's, he's still a, a huge advocate. I think he does like internet radio now. He's still an advocate for what radio can do for people. And, and I think that really imbued CFNY. So I'd say Marsden was like one of the big, but he wasn't even on air after a while. And, you know, Mae Potts was great. She was the, she played a lot of cool stuff. And I have to really dig back. Alan Cross was a guy who would do features on, on you know, the new music coming out of England. And he was very like, uh, he'd go like, you might be hearing a, about a band called Happy Mondays. Happy Mondays come from Manchester. You know, and it'd be like, you know, you'd hear the whole story of where they come from. and. You know, they call it baggy, you know, like, you know, like that whole thing. And he, Alan Cross became one of those guys that I think was like really influential because he would always like give you the backgrounder, you know, which is what you really want pre-internet too. A lot of this was pre nowadays. You could just link on the band's page or see them on Twitter. But back then it was like any nuggets, like people would phone in from England. Lee Carter would phone in from England saying, you know, you know, right on the streets now that, they, you know, the Oasis are coming, blah, 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 you know, like, and it would be, you know, Blur and Oasis are at each other's necks. And like, you know, like it was like a big deal, you know, I miss caring so much about that. <laughs> we are talking to Paul Myers, he of the Record Store Day podcast and comedy punks, kids in the hall documentary. We're going to take a break. Let's stop it. And we'll be right back. Welcome back to the What Difference Does It Make podcast and our guest, Paul Myers. Well, now you've got a podcast where you can kind of pretend like you're uh, you're one of these guys. The Record Store Day yeah. podcast, correct? How did you get involved with them? Yeah, it's very interesting how I got involved with them, to me anyway. Um, <laughs> the two co-founders are Carrie Colleton and Michael Kurtz. They're kind of the front of the organization. And a few years ago, Michael Kurtz had seen that I'd written a book about Todd Rundgren I wrote a book called uh, A Wizard of True Star, Todd Rundgren in the Studio, which was a long study of the golden era of Todd Rundgren as a producer, as opposed to an artist, which I also talk about, but mainly focused on him being a guy who made records. So when I did that, the guy from Record Store Day, Michael Kurtz in this case, contacted me and said, we're doing a special product for Record Store Day, and we'd love you to do like a liner note or something like that for it. And I thought, sure, great. And then we started talking, and I really related to Michael's mission, and what I later learned is also Carrie Colleton's mission, which is it's not just about being a guild for record stores. They really believe that record stores 
as a community, as a place in each town, that it could be a viable proposition, even though people had been saying that record stores were dead and that in digital world, that stuff wouldn't happen. And this was many years ago that they decided to protect everybody and create a sort of a network that promoted the idea of going to the record store. People go to record stores every day, probably didn't care that much about one day a year being called record store day, because in many ways it's like, that's the tourist day, whatever, you know, <laughs> but what it did do is it promoted the idea that every year we would pay homage to and perhaps patronize these businesses. Then they started creating special records with the labels and with the artists so that there'd be a, a reason to go into the record stores is to buy these special record store day exclusives, which are limited editions and mostly physical product because that's what they're selling. But sometimes they're CDs, sometimes they're vinyl. And that organization is the people who sponsor me because what I said was, I would love to do a podcast. Would you guys be a sponsor? At the same time, Michael called me back and said, we were actually thinking we should have a podcast and you should host it. So we worked out a deal. My whole interest was I want to interview music people generally. I want to interview musicians, producers, and anything related to the idea of making records. But, but what that is expanded to is I also interview record stores, record merchants, people who are lifers selling records. And that is beautiful. What happens is I discover a world that I wasn't really part of. It all connects. A typical show will have someone from a record store, as well as like last episode was Joe Elliott from Def Leppard. And he's a huge record fan. So he's not just talking about Def Leppard. He's talking about buying Bowie records and T-Rex records when he was a kid. And I always ask everybody, what was the first record you ever bought? It's a great conversation starter, but it also, it's a fascinating thing. If you listen to every episode, you'll start to hear like, you know, a lot of people bought Kiss Alive or Kiss Destroyer as their first record. A lot of people bought Janet Jackson's Rhythm Nation as their first record. And it's really interesting to hear the different, and you know, monkeys and kinks and all that stuff comes up, but it's really interesting to me. I'm genuinely interested in the people I talk to. So that's the best part of it. Indeed. There's your answer. Okay, so my first question that I have on my, my sheet was, what is your first record? You know, I believe the first record I ever got was Abbey Road, The Beatles. Dad was that any good? I've, is that any good? I've, it's, it's, you know, I would, it's, 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 it's a grower. Okay, it's a grower. I, I always tell people, they always thank me for turning them on to this band. Okay. But, um, <laughs> All right, good. Good to know. Okay, I'm writing this down. Okay. My parents are from Liverpool, so they knew about this band. You know, they said, you know, it'll grow on you. My dad took me down to Sam the Record Man, which was a huge three-story, I think three stories, uh, a big record story in downtown Toronto. It was super influential to me. Gordy? Yeah? What are you going to be when you grow up? A great hockey player. And you, Pierre? Prime Minister, of course. Sam? I'm going to have the best chain of record stores in Canada with great music at great prices. I said it, I did it. Great music, great prices. I don't know if this is a visual podcast, but you guys can see that poster on the wall with Wilco is based on the Sam the Record Man logo. And okay. it, like, that's why I have that. I'm from Toronto. One of the guys from Wilco was talking to me and he said, oh, we have a poster you'd like. So Sam the Record Man was this three-story, what I call the fun house of records. The third floor was just jazz, you know, so I didn't go up there much as a kid. But <laughs> um, my dad took me downtown to buy Abbey Road. And we drove down this uh, highway called the Don Valley Parkway that goes into the city from the suburbs. And it was just a magical day, like to go and buy the brand new Beatle album. And, you, know, you know, the cover would like, it's like a street in England with four guys walking across the street, you know, 
doing that thing that tourists do. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, they, they started it. Um, but, um, <laughs> I, you know how everybody always crosses Abbey Road? Let's do it on our album cover. <laughs> you know, that's right. Yeah, Have you crossed that street? It's very busy. I have crossed that street. It's... It is very busy, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They should just make it a pedestrian mall and have the, right. the Abbey Road traffic go around it. Right. <laughs> I was just there last summer, actually. I, I was working on something, and I was lucky to be there. And I was living really close to uh, St. John's Wood, which is where Abbey Road oh, Studios is. Yeah. So that was really cool. I, I went by there, and yeah, it's always clogged. Mm-hmm. from all over the world. Everyone comes there. Do you get a picture right, crossing the street? I have had a picture of me alone crossing the street <laughs> wearing a songwriter t-shirt that I got in Japan. It was like, it just says songwriter and it's dumb and I rarely show it to anyone. I have another one where I'm standing here pointing to the sign for Abbey Road that has a hundred signatures of, you know, everyone who's come by there totally graffitied out. That to me is almost more interesting because it's not the usual shot from Abbey yeah. Road. But mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, everyone's, I mean, I think Barney the dinosaur has even gone across that street. So, and he's pretty discerning. Yeah. You know. <laughs> what did you think about the Get Back movie? Yeah, you can't stop me talking about Get Back. Right. It's like, it's the greatest thing ever. I mean, imagine if you had Da Vinci shooting B-roll while he was, you know, doing his inventions and you're like, oh, great. He, you know, he drew the Mona Lisa that way first or he starts sketching it. And I'm thinking of calling this Mona Lisa and you're like, Oh, yeah, yeah. And I can sort of see the smiles there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then that's what Paul McCartney working out the song Get Back is with me. It's also like, I mean, this sounds horrible, but like the flight recorder. <laughs> it's like the flight recorder, you know. <laughs> the black I'm box, sorry, yeah. A tragic yeah. crash story. But you're seeing the band dismantle, but also realign. Like mm. we for years had believed that yeah. the Beatles just fought all the time during the, the Get Back sessions because of the movie Let It Be, which was cut a certain way. But you realize that, you know, people just at that stage, they had so many external influences. They were just fighting it out amongst themselves, but they also loved each other. John came around and started laughing at Paul's jokes and they were goofing on each other. And Ringo was so supportive of Paul. You know, he's playing the piano and he goes, oh, look at look at that. That's a great song you're writing. Even George, when they realized they were hurting his feelings, when they realized they were hurting George's feelings, they said, well, we should go around. We should go around and talk to him. Like, that's awesome. And just to go through all eight hours of that with the Beatles, I can't, I haven't talked to one musician who hasn't felt as invested in it as I am. And I'm sure that's just musicians. I mean, everyone who's a fan, I think in anything, I think it's one of the most fascinating studies ever. You know, it's right up there with An American Family, which was a great uh, documentary oh, yeah. on PBS where they followed a family around, you know, like reality TV. It's the ultimate reality TV get back. Anyway, it so, really yes, is like character studies. Yeah. I couldn't the, get enough. The best. You did get to talk to uh, to Devo in your, one of your recent podcasts. One of my favorite stories, I, I think it's true, is that John Lennon saw Devo and he immediately got it. And he was like, he went up to them. He's like, yeah, 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 yeah. He's like, he understood like, yeah. okay, this is yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, they're doing like their own version yeah. of, of the Beatles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're asking Paul uh, if it's true. I I don't know. Yeah, as someone as like a discerning guy, was that, that true? Doesn't have to be a question. That doesn't have to be a question. I'm I'm just into it. Uh, we did talk about the Stones. Actually, when I talked to uh, Mark and and Jerry, Mark went on, and actually both Jerry and Mark were talking about how much they think the Stones are undersold as lyricists because if you yeah. look at Satisfaction, which they covered so well, and they turned it into their own song, 
it's very much similar to what Devo were singing about. He can't be a man because he doesn't smoke the same cigarettes as me. Devo were like a spit in the face to the madman ad culture and also to the sort of the industrial war machine that had kind of hurt their friends at Kent State University. So they were saying, this is America, love it or not, but here's what it is. And we're gonna like parody it in a kind of a deliberately playful way, sort of like the the Dadaists, you know, they were art students. That's the thing, right? Yeah. So they, they were doing an artistic version of America. And so they recognized the Stones had had subversive lyrics with it, you know, Mother's Little Helper and 19th Nervous Breakdown. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, the Stones were different than the Beatles at that point because they were singing about stuff that was a little, you know, neurotic. And the Beatles were still doing I Love You songs. Basically. And then eventually, eventually John and Paul even, they got into the idea of putting social consciousness in their song. The case isn't that the Beatles weren't good, it's just that the Stones were as influential in their own way. And I've always been a Beatle guy, so I appreciated hearing good Stones stuff. Yeah, I was about to say, it sounds like you were initially a, a Beatles guy, but you've uh, you've come around to accepting the Rolling Stones as a, as a pretty <laughs> decent band. Yeah, I welcome them into my heart. Okay, thanks. Uh, um, good, good, uh, good. The, the, here's the, uh, an interesting side story. I, I told you I don't <laughs> Go ahead, we're, you're more than welcome. I once debated playfully on New York radio, the Beatles versus Stones question, which of course is a laughable question and a ridiculous question, but we did it for fun. Ophira Eisenberg from NPR and Bill Janowitz from Buffalo Tom. Bill had written about the Stones a lot. So they represented the Rolling Stones side and my brother Mike and I represented the Beatles. And it was a mock debate on W, oh anyway, the New York NYC. I'm sure it was NYC, right? Yeah, WNYC, yeah. It's been a while now, it's been about it was really fun and I won on a technicality. I think we said something that, you know, the Rolling Stones, well, but here's, I wanna give you an example of how Bill beat me. Bill Janowitz came up with the best point and I've told him this many times, which is, I said, well, the Beatles are better because nobody ever killed anyone at Altamont after hearing the Beatles. And then, oh. and then he just paused and went, and then he paused and went, helter skelter. And I went, oh, oh. <laughs> Charles Manson, of course. Shit. So, so, Game, set, and match. There you go. I crossed crossed the stage and I hugged him on stage. I literally hugged him. I said, dude, you know, we won, like I said, on a technicality. I think it was an audience vote. And I just, but I've I've been maintaining ever since that what was the best part about that debate was that I came away completely loving the Stones and still loving the Beatles. And I think it's entirely possible to do that. So it was a good debate. So it was a, I mean, if, if that's what came out of it, that's huge. It was more of a summit than a debate. You know, yeah, it's a summit. That never happens yeah. in debates where the other person, the other on the other side, are like you know what, you're you're right, you're you're 100 right. <laughs> let's hug, let's give a big hug and separate and you know agree. That helter skelter is definitely yeah. a mic drop. All right, so okay, let me give you another ridiculous <laughs> question. Monty Python, kids in the hall. Who do you got? Who do you got in this match? I think even even the kids in the hall would say it's Python. I mean, Python started it. <laughs> oh, come Python on. started it. You know, I mean, I'd have to say Python. Just And I think everyone in the kids in the hall would agree with me on that. Of now, course. I will say this, though. I will say this, that kids in the hall created their own version of whatever it is that Python did, and they weren't basing it on Python. And they have their own factors, which we talk about in the documentary Comedy Punks, which is directed by Reg Harkema, but I'm one of the producers and it's based on my book. So we wanted to tell you the social and personal things that inspired the kids in the hall to think the way they do, to create the comedy they did and that they continue to do. So Python had very different circumstances. And so their comedy is going to be very different. 
That's it. <laughs> okay. I know that Dave is chomping at the bit to get to kids in the hall, but I had another question about record stores <laughs> about the podcast. Oh, yeah. Sure, sure. And thank you. Are you getting the artist that you want to talk to? Yes. Um, so here's the thing. There's only That's simply put. Yeah, so, so what it is is what I bring to it is we don't have to talk about Record Store Day with these artists every time, but there is a through line which is I never forget that physical media is the thing that we celebrate. You know, everyone has their reason why they get to do a certain show. You know, it's not as blatant for me as the, those old <laughs> – TV shows from the 60s where, you know, they had to smoke Chesterfield cigarettes. But um, <laughs> I, mean, I, don't, I don't make any claims that I don't believe in. But I think if I get Andrew Sandoval, who's the monkeys manager, and he's but he's also done a lot of work for Rhino Records, creating box sets and is a great archivist yeah. of music. I can have him on the show. We don't have to talk specifically about Record Store Day to say that this is relevant to the idea of physical media. And the same thing with, uh, I've had people who are authors who talk, who've written about music and they're not even selling an album. They might be selling the book physically in independent bookstores, which is still kind of our sister industry. And also books are sold in record stores. So sometimes I'm not so slavish to the idea of it being retail centric the whole time. But I think that what I do is I'm about to brag, maybe, but I, I think I bring a broad knowledge of the idea of what this is. is you know, I'm an author myself. I'm now a documentary producer. I am all about communicating storytelling. And that's my thing is I like in my own work telling stories. I like getting people on who have stories to tell. And that through line is very human. So that's yeah. why every conversation is one on one about, you know, what gets you going? Well, you know, what's your creative process and what factors influence the work you do? If I get to do that for the rest of my life in any format, it's good life. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, it's great. It and you've got some wonderful artists, not just classic rock artists, you know, like, as I mentioned, Devo, and you've talked to Neil Finn and uh, Kurt Smith, Tears for Fears, Bonnie Raitt, but you're talking to a lot of uh, up and coming, like wet, some of my favorites, yeah, like Wet Leg. Japanese ja Wet Leg, Japanese Breakfast. Yeah. Uh, uh, Robert Glasper, who was a great, uh, he did Black Radio 3, and I really, I'm just, and he did the music for the uh, Winning Time on uh, HBO. One of my uh, favorites. You know, I, and John Baptiste. And these are people that I didn't grow up listening to. This And this is like people who are happening now. I want all of that, by the way. We just yeah. uh, banked an interview with Soccer Mommy. And she's got a great new record she's, that's she's coming amazing. out. And, and Jeff Tweedy, which is, I guess, Dad Rock. Uh, the very next episode he's, of the podcast is he's the Wilco special about Cruel Country. But I also banked Stars from Montreal. Stars have this great, beautiful new album called uh, From Capleton Hill. Oh, they've been uh, around for a while. Stars, I, I yeah, remember they've that. been around for a while. Yeah. And, oh, I also have an interview with Nabil Ayers. He started two different record stores, and his father was Roy Ayers, the jazz guy. Mm -hmm. And he's written a book about his life. And so that is not even a musician, but he's very relevant. He has a whole multiracial history and music history, indie music and jazz. So this is what I love. To answer Good. your question, I want to have as many brand new artists like i've got a standing invitation to heim i still want to get phoebe bridgers you know like i've been asking for three years i want billy eilish and phineas like i want them both to come on the show i don't know we're big enough yet those people have a million people asking for them so they'll do maybe five out of the 60 hundred you know sixty thousand people that are asking i want to be the one that they say yes to and all i can do is just keep doing a good interview and hope that somewhere people go oh you'll get a good shake from Paul Myers. He'll let you talk, you know, yeah. when I'm interviewing. You got big vinyl behind you. You should be able to, to do this, right? You know, just. Yeah, big <laughs> vinyl. Yeah, 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 yeah. You had Johnny Marr, too. 
Oh, so these are what I call my hero interviews, by the way. Yeah. So there's there's categories. There's up and coming, you know, breaking now, like Wet Leg. I was so excited because we had that in the can. Just as their album was coming out, we already had that interview, mm. which rarely happens like that. And the Tears for Fears one was good, too, because their new album had just come out when we had that interview. So And it's great. But, uh, then there's my hero interviews are Johnny Marr. Andy Partridge of XTC was one of my favorites because that as a musician, XTC were like a huge influence on me. Todd Rundgren on twice. Right, can I stop? Okay, yeah. So you mentioned both those guys in one breath. Todd Rundgren and Andy Partridge. Did you talk about either one of them during your interviews? Okay. Yeah, I think we did. And they love each other? They had a lot of tension when they made the record Skylarking. Both parties, I think, were very, can be very ornery. Uh, Andy protecting himself as an artist, and I understand that. And Todd, you know, had a job to do. And Todd was also, by his own accountability, like he said... You know, he could be very snarky with people. And there was just an, a definite turf war on that record. That part of it still persists, but they both respect. Andy has said very nice things about Todd as a producer who managed to fashion an album out of that situation. And Todd is very much a big fan of Andy Partridge as a songwriter and a musician. So they both come to a point where they don't want this to be a, the only story is that they didn't get along. And there's still some things that either of them say about each other. And even me saying this now, Andy and Todd both email me. <laughs> so I don't want to I don't want to take sides on anything. But uh, I am a big <laughs> fan of XTC and a big fan of Todd Rundgren. So you can imagine, think of the children here in the middle. Like, you know, I hate it when mommy and daddy fight. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Who else was on the hero list? <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. So, you know, it's funny. I've interviewed David Byrne on stages, at least once that I can remember. But he hasn't been on the show yet. But I had Chris France and Tina Weymouth from Talking Heads. And that was great to also hear Chris's version of growing up in Talking Heads. And to me, like Talking Heads were another one of those bands, you know. They might be giants. John Plansberg came on. And that's a band that I've always had a huge admiration for. And to this day, we really hit it off. I thought, you know, Plansberg was really on point talking about a lot of artistic things and just really everything I'd hoped it would be. I mean, there are people that I never thought I would get to talk to, like Juliana Hatfield, who was like indie darling in the Mm -hmm. 90s and is still around and doing great work, just to have that in Tanya Donnelly and people like that, Mm -hmm. all that Boston scene, you know, and who else? Oh, Tony Visconti. Uh, oh, nice. David Bowie was yeah. the very first guest on our podcast. And here I am talking David Bowie's producer and T-Rex's producer. And he produced Thin Lizzy and he produced Morrissey even. And just to talk to him across a Zoom screen. And the microphone he was using was the mic that he had used on Black Star, David Bowie's oh. last album. And he was very respectful. I said, like, how was David in the studio? And he goes, you know, Paul, I don't. I make it a point not to talk about personal things about David just out of respect to the family. And it was like he talked about the things he could talk about and it was really respectful of David his legacy and it just made me love him more i think visconti's one of the great rock producers you know and he worked on band on the run paul mccartney and mm-hmm. so, so know, it's been pretty cool to have people like i, I get audibly you can tell i get really excited <laughs> no, I hear you. to talk to and i think they get it too i yeah. think they feel that i know that i know their stuff and i'm an artist too so i hope that there's a connection there okay so i know dave wants to ask why not heim we're yeah. from the valley so I feel like the Heim sister, we should have them before they get on your podcast. Not, not that there's any competition, <laughs> but they are that's Valley girls. It's a good old-fashioned old Heim challenge. Yeah, it? right? Well, here's the thing. You can have, if they go to you, you first, that's fine. I just want to make sure we get to talk to them because they are the coolest. Mm-hmm. They're the coolest. They're the smartest. By the way, I envy 
young girls today who have role models like Haim and grew up maybe a post Slater Kenny. I just saw a documentary about Fanny, the group from the 70s. That, that just came out, and yeah. They were the first, uh, it's a yeah. great film. Okay, great film. I'll have Bobby, to check that out. Bobby, it's called The Right to Rock. And the hell that women musicians went through in the old days, and maybe still do, but less and less so because, you know, bands like Fanny kicked ass and then bands like the runaways the go-go's the bangles even they got peeped on with the sexism but the, nowadays there's so many women who just go for it at, at, at young ages too like young girls are going for it, like the linda lindas you know oh. and it's so exciting to me that it doesn't matter what dudes think anymore <laughs> like, <laughs> just go for it i'm there for it because the music's great because they're, they're kicking ass so, Haim, come on the show. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> All right. Yes, they are the coolest. Would you get Kids in the Hall on the show? I mean, they're Kids in the Hall rock and roll fans. Oh, God, yes. Yeah. Yes, they are. I, yeah, actually, Kevin's on this week. I did this thing where I, sometimes if people are super busy, uh, I ask them to tell me their, their first record that they ever bought. And Kevin's the first one. Just sent me a voice memo talking about the, uh, his first record they ever bought. And it's beautiful. Like, it's Kevin being Kevin. It's like this rambling thing that he did. It's like two minutes long and he doesn't breathe once, you know. I actually, for a birthday, I paid the $45 for a cameo from Kevin McDonald. And he just, he just goes off. I mean, he does like this <laughs> flop sweat type thing, but you know he's always in control. But he just like went off for like, you know, like I got more than my money's worth with, with Kevin McDonald. <laughs> it was just, it's just the greatest thing ever. And I watched it, I watched it last night. It's just, I mean, he's, he's just brilliant and I, I can't get enough of him. There, there's, there, this is booked by your buddies. How many buddies do you have? Two, nine, 48? Is it just one sad person who pretends to be more than one person? The crazy guy? I'm three people, so I'm Rich's buddies. Um, or maybe three people. How many buddies do you have? They're, they're not very specific. They seem to have money problems. <laughs> it took 11 of them to, uh, to get Dave Foley. But Dave Foley is very expensive. I'm very cheap. Um, so I, I, maybe only half a person paid for me. I'm much cheaper than Dave Foley because I'm much less funnier than Dave Foley. My brother Mike bought it, uh, or someone bought him a cameo, I think, of Dave Foley. He's, Dave Foley and Mike are really good friends. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and, and, and he, it was a birthday, ca birthday cameo. It was Mike's birthday last week. And it was a birthday cameo, and he did it with Mike behind him. Oh, right. He, he, he did it in front of them. And I, I don't know if it's probably not for public broadcast, but it was the funniest thing ever. If he ever releases it, I'll let you know, but I don't think he will. But uh, it was just hilarious. It was like, you know, just, and it, it was, it was very lovely actually. Cause he, he said, you know, my good friend, Mike Myers, who we've been together, you know, since friends, since, you know, 40 years ago. And Dave's been on the show. Kevin's been on the show. I'm trying to work it out to get Scott Thompson and Paul Bellini on. Cause they have this band called mouth Congress. We just haven't figured out the right date. They're actually playing gigs again, uh, mouth Congress. So I would love to have Scott on and uh, Mark and Bruce are welcome to come on anytime. It's a wrangling thing with these guys. Hurting the kids in the hall and to do anything is like hurting cats, as they oh, say. Okay. Um, <laughs> and it's amazing that we got them together to be interviewed for the documentary comedy punks now on prime video can you tell me about paul bellini i just knew him as the towel guy i didn't realize he was a writer and uh, like a vital part of kids oh. in the hall can you tell me how vital a role he plays in the kids in the hall yeah well so in my book kids in the hall one dumb guy still in print in one dumb guy <laughs> I, I got paul bellini to really explain his role so paul bellini was he'd gone to university with scott thompson at york university in toronto Paul was in the film department and Scott was in the acting track and they so clearly they needed each other. So Scott would be on camera for Paul's video experiment. So they knew each other from way back. So when the kids in the hall first started, Paul would bring the video rig out and film them in this club called the Rivoli. 
And so every week they would be able to look at their game tapes and see how sketches were playing. So they were constantly videotaping these live shows and it built up an archive. Sometimes in rehearsal, they would have video rolling and, and sometimes they would be capturing discussions and even arguments. And then on trips backstage, on tours, they would be backstage and they might be running video. And when they first moved to New York to work out their comedy for Lorne Michaels, they were videotaping just before they went out for the night. So they have all this footage. So that's there. And then when they get signed to the TV show, they realize that a lot of Scott's material, being the only gay guy in the troupe, Paul and him, but they were both gay men who were good friends, and they knew each other's humor. And so Bellini would set up Scott for a sketch, it's, or he would add to something. So they realized Paul should be in the writer's room basically as a Scott Wrangler. Hmm. Uh, that's what they call him, Scott Wrangler. <laughs> oh, that's funny. When they finally expanded the writers in, in the second season, they hired a few of their friends. Brian Hart was one of them. Norm Hiscock, he'd originally worked with Bruce and Mark in Calgary. And so they brought Norm Hiscock back in to be one of the writers. Now he's gone on to be a huge TV producer for like work on The Office and Parks and Rec. But Norm Hiscock was one of the writers. And Paul Bellini was specifically a task to be, first they had him as a receptionist, actually, to be honest. But he's Amazing. a bad receptionist. <laughs> Love it. Then they just, they made him the Scott Wrangler. And then the towel thing came out of the fact that <laughs> they were joking about something. And I think maybe one of them had been to the uh, one of the, the men's bathhouses in Toronto and Mark said something like we should just do a sketch where Bellini in a towel and they did it and Bellini went along with it then they worked it into other sketches and then had a contest to touch the man in the towel so you would if you're what you know send your name in Bellini will fly to meet you and they'd film you touching Bellini and then at the very last episode of the first run of the kids in the hall he's the guy who buries them then the series is over you just see a grave and then bellini dancing on their grave and saying thank god this is over so what they've done for season six as you might know is they open up with bellini being summoned to dig up the coffin or the grave of the it's a shallow grave actually of the kids in the hall so bellini now has a continuing role to the point where i have conjectured that the entire kids in the hall is an figment of his imagination <laughs> so what we're actually seeing is it's like saint elsewhere it's like bellini's imagination is that there's this five-man troop the kids in the hall but anyway uh, that's just my crazy theory going I... to the message boards you see the letter the letter r comes up 15 times right no, 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 but i'll show you my board no, no, yeah, no. right. Yeah, it's all, I have a all bands. Board. Yeah, it's like an FBI yeah. chart. Okay. I literally, like, I never applaud uh, when I'm like, when I'm sitting on the couch or anything. But w after mm -hmm. that first episode, you know, the new series, when they, they dig them up and they see how horrified they all look. And then Shadowy Men, uh, Shadowy Planet, that song comes on. I was like, yeah, yeah you know, I, was, I got so excited. I, I mean, it was just, a, it was a wonderful moment for me and for all fans. But, um, Tell me about shadowy men on a shadowy planet. Where did these guys come from? Oh, well, actually, as I, again, in my book, we, uh, we <laughs> talked to Don Pyle, the drummer. I believe it's men. the book is still available. Where is it available? It's still available. It's uh, oh, okay. from House of Nancy. If your store doesn't have it, I'm sure they'll order it for you. It's okay. called uh, Kids in the Hall, One Dumb Guy, because five of them are very smart, but together they're one dumb guy. That's the theory. Their theory, not mine. So in Calgary, we have Bruce and Mark before they were kids in the hall. Bruce was good friends with Reed Diamond, the original bass player for The Shadowy Men, and Brian Connolly. And when Brian and Reed moved to Toronto, which is what you do in Canada, in those days anyway, they moved ahead and it was, they were part of the punk rock scene there and everything. And then Bruce said, when I move to Toronto, I'll join up with them. And so they all were hanging out. And then when the kids in the hall were doing a live show somewhere, they brought The Shadowy Men on a shadowy planet to play live at the side of the stage. So in between sketches, they would have this live rock band 
which became now, of course, you know, tied into the whole Kids in the Hall mythology. And when they got the TV series with Lorne Michaels, I think there was someone, it might have been Lorne, but someone at the company Broadway Video said, you know, comedy has saxophone music. Comedy <laughs> has horns, you know, like those HBO specials, you know. Tonight, and Saturday Night Live has saxophones. Yeah. And they said, no, our comedy has, you know, big note, twang, guitar, sort of rockabilly-inspired surf music. That's what we do. And so they got to do the theme, Having an Average Weekend, which is, uh, which actually was a song that they, they had been playing at the live shows. And then that became the theme song. synonymous, I noticed, with other comedy troupes would start using similar kinds of music, including The Daily Show. And you suddenly had this idea that comedy wasn't about saxophone jazz, it was about rock and roll. And that's kind of what happened there. And then I just want to tell you a little sad footnote is Reed Diamond passed away many years ago. And Dallas Good took over from Toronto as their bass player. So in the new series, you hear the original recording with Reed Diamond, they're still using the original but on the, what they call interstitials, when they pl have the band cutaways, they show them at the, on the opening credits, they show members of the band. Dallas Good is the bass player. Both those bass players have now passed away because Dallas Good just passed away uh, oh. prematurely, really young, really sad. Everyone loved Dallas Good. So it is kind of a weird, not funny footnote to the whole thing is that both bass players from Shadowy Men have since passed away, but their music continues and their music is synonymous with the kids in the hall. Like you can't, think of one without the other now anyway rest in peace to the oh, yeah to replace reed once was a big order and i can't even imagine replacing him twice but they yeah. they might need to because the shadowy men are still a viable thing yeah. you should go see them if they ever have a chance to play again i would say this reed also did something very special at the kids in the halls taping they would have the shadowy men on a shadowy planet playing between sketches just like they had in the clubs and they had a riser behind the bleachers so they were like eight feet off the ground in the corner and Reed would always decorate, he was an artist and he would decorate the stage area with spray painted signs and glitter. And and he had a very mm -hmm. special part of the whole motif and it was a very big feature that Reed brought to it. And and we talk about that in my book, but we also show that in the documentary comedy punks yeah. now on Amazon Prime Video. Very nice, I love it. Yeah, I mean, even having an average weekend as a, as a name for a song is, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a tribute to an old, uh, I think it's the Shadows song, Having a Wild Weekend. So it's like not a wild weekend, it's an average weekend, you know. So. <laughs> a last Kids in the Hall question and kind of tying it together with the Beatles. The Beatles had the Cavern Club and the Kids in the Hall had their own club where they started, word started building. And what, what was this club and where was it? And were you at these shows? Oh, yeah, yeah. I was at all those shows at the Rivoli, Rivoli yeah. Club in Toronto. So, so the Rivoli was a, a restaurant in the front and a little cabaret theater in the back. And all the rock bands would play there, including mine, the Gravelberries. We knew the Rivoli very well. And when the kids in the hall started doing these uh, residencies, I, I think it was every Monday or Tuesday night, depending on 
when it was, they would stage shows there and they would have like, they built a side stage, which wasn't there usually. So they could have two stages going at once and play with the lights. So they would have like a scene end and then another scene comes up in a different part of the room and they really use the space. And so the Rivoli is like, you know, the sixth Beatle, if you will. It's a part of their lore, which was great because in the documentary, we finally got them to come sit down in the Rivoli and do the one of the main interviews, the master interview, they call it. They sitting them five sitting in the on the dance floor in the Rivoli, yeah. like at tables, and they have the stage behind them where it all happened. We never got to do that with the Beatles. So this is cool that we got to do it with the, with the kids in the hall. And uh, actually, there's a plaque at the Rivoli now for the kids in the hall oh. that was just commemorated last, last week, actually. I was pretty excited about that. But yeah, the Rivoli was a big character in my book and also in the movie. Uh, yeah, I mean, that strip of nightclubs mm -hmm. in uh, Queen Street West in Toronto. Uh, my wife and I, when we left Toronto in 1997, we had our going away party at the next door to that place called the Horseshoe Tavern, which was also a legendary club for other reasons, like punk rock and everything that happened there. Oh, and the Rivoli, I should point out too, used to be many different things over the years. It was a, a cabaret theater, but it was also a communist socialist bookstore in the 1950s or something. Oh. And before that, I think it was some kind of revolutionary hall, like where they would meet to talk about like workers' rights and stuff like that. It has this long history on Queen Street. The kids in the hall kind of cemented it as a comedy spot. So a lot of other troops would play there. A lot of comedy troops started around that time, including the vacant lot, which was Mark McKinney's brother, Nick McKinney, who is producer of Kids in the Hall Comedy yeah. Punks. So it all works out. Look at that. It all ties together. It's all connected. Oh. We all know each other. That's the other thing. <laughs> I find that I'm six degrees or less from almost everyone in Canadian media. I'm not saying that as a brag, <laughs> maybe it's a small country, but even older as I am, I now know the managers of younger bands because they used to be in bands that I was in or something. All right. Who is the sexiest of the kids in the hall for you? Well, I shouldn't play favorites, Dave. <laughs> yeah, I won't. I won't say any. I won't. I don't want to say any one of them, but Dave Foley for sure. Dave is one of the prettiest <laughs> men I know. Uh, Dave in a red-haired wig any day of the week, just absolutely. He's always been the best dressed as a woman. Like he's you, you think like. So? Just, yeah. There's no argument there. I mean, well, there sure is an argument, but that's okay. <laughs> it's like Beatles and Stones, best, right? <laughs> the best, the best woman though, I think, is uh, Scott Thompson because Scott doesn't just play drag. Scott plays, you know, when he plays his mother character, uh, Fran. It's, oh yeah. Uh, that's Fran. That's not. That's not Scott Thompson. That's Fran. Oh, is that right? And Scott is. Scott is a great, great actor. Who is Francesca um, Fiore? Who is who is that character? Oh, Francesca Fiore. <laughs> well, in my book, one dumb guy. Oh, okay. Now available. Ding. Um, we talk about the origins of that, but that's the Toronto culture of foreign cinema. There were so many second run and art house theaters in Toronto that everyone in the kids in the hall and and also people like me who are in that orbit, we just saw tons of foreign films. So when he came up with this character, Francesca Fiore, based on different characters you would see in Spanish films, and it's just a generic foreign film star. Who's Francesca Fiore? Oh, well, she plays this aging movie star who's having an affair with the general's wife. Oh, they're also having an affair. Who, Francesca Fiore and Bruno Panstrones? And she's also seeing the senator. I see this fantastic American movie last night, Bruno Ponce Jones. It was about these two guys who see movie, huh? And, and one of them, he liked this movie very, very much. But the other one, he no see, or so he say, huh? But I think they both see the same movie, huh? What you think? Um, 
Francesca Fiore, you know, you know I don't like American movies. <laughs> and uh, footnote to that, when we premiered the documentary One Dumb Guy, now on Prime Video, when we premiered that at the Hot Docs Festival in Toronto earlier this month, the theater that it was in is the Bloor Cinema, which is now the Ted Rogers Hot Docs Cinema. But that is the same building that used to be the Bloor Cinema, which was the rep repertory, uh, you know, art house theater that we saw all these movies in mm. so it's a perfect circular thing like that we were watching this documentary that we all made about the kids in the hall in the place where we saw art house films it felt very special to me and interview in the club you did all you had a lot of closure a lot of circles going I visited, on yeah. i visited the rivoli actually i went back to the rivoli and i stood outside it if you look at my instagram there's a picture of me standing in front of the rivoli and i just said pilgrimage bare naked ladies or rush who's the more canadian band oh that's Good. tricky Oh, that's a that's a tough one because the Bare Naked Ladies are good friends of mine, but Rush were the band that told everyone in Canada that they could be a serious rock band too. So, Rush were the first indie rock band, you know, in Canada. People forget that that they were kind of their own. They were on a major label, but they were always their own thing. They never chased the charts. They were always just making their own thing, and they eventually did start their own indie labels. I can't speak to how Canadian Rush seems to anyone else. But I know the Bare Naked Ladies seem very Canadian to most people. So I would say Bare Naked Ladies are the more Canadian seeming then, but you gotta go with the, you know, the founders of the country. These these you know, the Rush were the <laughs> Rush Rush are on the fifty dollar bill in Canada. I mean, no, they're not, but I can tell you they are. I I was about to what? Are you an expert here? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, can we yeah, can yeah. <laughs> I'm an expert in Canadian currency and I can tell you that Rush are on the fifty dollar okay. bill. I'm glad well, we came sir. to the to the expert. Okay, very nice. YYZ, right? That's how I learned that uh, that's how well, you pronounce yeah, it's it. It's YYZ in Canada, but I think I think people say YYZ now anyway. It's just like we don't say ZZ top. We kind of get it, <laughs> you know. I, I also think Canadians are so agreeable that we will pronounce it the way you want to hear it, just so we don't have to stop and talk about it. You know, and make us happy, make the rest yeah, of the yeah, world yeah. happy. There you go. <laughs> All right. Okay, lastly, before you leave, I know that you met Paul McCartney. Like, you're meeting your heroes. What do you say to, to uh, Sir Paul McCartney, who apparently had some impact on your life? <sighs> well, uh, this, there's a whole long story there. I first <laughs> met him at Saturday Night Live, and I was, like, nervous. And Linda was still alive, and I gave Linda a kiss on the cheek, but missed and kissed her on the mouth by accident. <laughs> oh, <laughs> uh, and I shook, his, I shook his hand, and he had calluses on his fingertips, and I said... I said, oh, my God, beetle calluses. He's right? got he goes, oh, blisters funny. on his fingers. And I, and I, exactly. And, and, and I, said, uh, I said, you have to excuse me. I'm obviously, you're a big deal to me. And then Paul McCartney, I love this because he said, it's okay. I know, I know the look. I know the look. <laughs> like, he is the Pope of Beetledom. So he knows. He, he's constantly blessing babies. Like, he knows mm -hmm. his job in life is to constantly be, the, you know, it's more important that you're meeting him than he's meeting you sometimes, I think. And then the second time I met him, it was more of a receiving line. And I just said something about, hey, Jude. I said, gonna, I said, I still remember you playing Hey, Jude at Saturday Night Live. And he says, yeah, we play that. We'll play that tonight. We're going to play that tonight. And I was like, oh, really? Uh, I so had he's no funny idea too. that you would be playing Hey, Jude. Oh, he's very funny. He's also what I like about Paul McCartney in general. Like, this is not even based on personal anecdotes. He seems to know exactly who Paul McCartney is and what he means. And he can, you know, there's an expression I always use is don't write checks that you can't cash. He could say that he has been a huge impact on somebody and just have it be matter of fact because he knows. Like, why would he deny the fact that people have started their whole careers based on his music? You know, oh, so he, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So he knows. Right. And so he's not false hum humility. He's humble. 
he also knows that he's just a guy who happens to have a lot of talent, but he's just a guy. And he knows that he's worked hard. And like, I just love that about Paul McCartney. It's just, it's like kind of like probably one of the most godless pop stars you'll ever in history. There doesn't seem to be, I'm sure there's stagecraft to some degree. Mostly what you see is what you probably get. That's great. The next time you have the opportunity to meet him, you can remind him that you kissed his wife on the lips. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure he's still mad about that. He's going to shake his <laughs> Well, Paul Myers, you made us very happy today. I appreciate you having me. I hope, I, I tend to be a lot. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> no, you were everything hey, look, I was I, hoping for. Yeah, no, this is what we wanted. <laughs> Anything you need to plug? I don't know, did you mention the documentary or the book or what uh, What do you need to yeah, uh, to uh, mention? I, I don't know if I mentioned that there's a documentary currently on Amazon Prime called uh, Kids in the Hall Comedy Punks directed by Reg Harkema. And uh, my book, Kids in the Hall, One Dumb Guy, House of Anansi Press, is still available. You can order it anywhere. I'd like it if you buy it at an indie bookstore, but you can also order it from the Big Space Guy. Well, the Records for Day podcast, wherever you get podcasts. There's all my plugs right there. You can find me on Twitter. Pull my ears, one out. All right. Appreciate it. Thanks, Paul. All right. Take care. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay. A great talk with Paul Myers. Did you enjoy that, Holly? That was so much fun. I swear we could have talked to him for much, much longer, but he was so generous. I think we took up more time than intended. Doesn't shy away from the tough questions. Beatles, Stones, Kids in the Hall, or Honey Python, Rush, Bare Naked Ladies. Those were the tough questions. He answered them all. So thumbs up to Paul for not uh, avoiding those questions. If you enjoyed what you heard, Please subscribe to our podcast. Uh, We're also on social media. Where do they find us, Holly? WDDIM podcast and What Difference Does It Make podcast on YouTube. There's going to be some wonderful things on YouTube. All goes off on tangents, so Holly will uh, scoop those up. She digs them up and throws them onto the YouTube, and it's always wonderful. So See what sticks. Once again, we stick up an episode every Friday, so subscribe. We're done with this bit of uh, shenanigans, so until next week, this is Dave. This is Holly. Check you later. Over and out.